Hi, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This is the second part of my conversation with Jessica Helfand. If you haven't listened to the first interview with Jessica, uh, I really encourage you to do so. It's this really interesting conversation that covers all sorts of ground that we recorded back in July. But this conversation was recorded earlier this month when Jessica was a visiting critic here at the Maryland Institute College of Art, where I'm currently a graduate student. And we talk about a bunch of different things like the history of Winter House, which is the studio she co-founded with her husband, Bill Drentel, who uh, passed away in 2013, and how the studio incorporated publishing and writing and uh, design discourse into its practice. We also talk about the role of the designer in a uh, post-Trump world and how design is never neutral. And we wrap up talking about Jessica's experience teaching design to business students at the Yale School of Management with Michael Beirut and how these students are changing how she thinks about design. As is always the case with Jessica, this is a, a really wonderful conversation that gave me a lot to think about. And I always appreciate her generosity and her general support of my work and this podcast. And so, like I said in last week's episode, it means so much to me to talk with her. And I just always love hearing what she has to say. So let's get right into it. This is my second conversation with the great Jessica Helfand. It was really interesting because I listen to all of these interviews I do a couple times in editing and then when they're up I listen to them to make sure everything's good and I always realize how many things I miss like from the guest because I'm like so into the right. interview mode right. and so I was like excited because I didn't know that you were going to be here when we did our interview over Skype right that I could listen to this and then ask you all the follow-up questions that I missed in the moment and, and like I just said I realized listening I was shocked and embarrassed that we didn't talk about Winter House at all, which I feel like is very important. And I actually have a lot of Go questions away. about. Um, and the, the thing that I think, the thing that I'm most interested in is kind of how, how the studio evolved over the years. Mm -hmm. And then I'm also interested in its relationship to Design Observer and to publishing and kind of all these other things that you mm -hmm. were doing at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess let's start with like how it started. And then a little bit of that trajectory. Great. I haven't been asked this, I think, maybe ever. Um, <laughs> so let me try okay, and good. This is, this and dig, into, good start. dig into the bowels of my memory. Uh, so the simple answer was that we had very young children and couldn't figure out how to have very young children and have two different careers. And um, uh, Bill used to like to say that I was envious of what he was doing in Trentel Dola Partners, and he was envious of what I was doing with my clients then, which was then a new media world, right? So yeah. I worked with Ellen Lupton when she was at the Cooper Hewitt doing, you know, a wall of type that moved. And I think about it now, it was comparatively, it's rather primitive to even imagine in the scope of what we know can actually be typographic movement yeah. in the world. So I, really, it's embarrassing to even say that. But... Uh, so I was doing things for, I was doing CD-ROMs for Voyager, and I oh, did the wow. very first website for the New York Times, and I was doing things that, that were experimental, but still for clients. And Dreadful Doyle Partners at that time was putting Martha Stewart in Kmart right. and doing lump soda sheet packaging, and you know went on to do incredibly great things. In any event, short answer, 
we decided to, he left Gentle Doll Partners, and I had been sharing space with Abbott Miller in New York. Ab oh, wow. Abbott would later go to Pentagram, and we went, and we, and we decided that. to spend, um, uh, we bought a tiny little house in the country, and uh, we loved it up there, and because we had a dial-up modem, we could be there four days in here, oh, three, right. and in the city three days. Right. And then our second child came, and we decided to move at a time when we still, I think, had a dial-up modem. The big change happened when we found this crazy house, and the house had been built in 1932 for the guy who did the murals at Radio City yeah. Music Hall, and he had a studio that he painted in diagonally, and we put up a lot of bookshelves, and our book collection grew and grew and grew. And then the big thing, I think, that made Winter House Winter House was a studio in a house yeah. where there was this really immense, immense, deep library. And and because Bill had this kind of indefatigable, endless um, curiosity for many things besides design, you know, we had a pretty good science library, we had a pretty good political library, we had a historical library. We, yeah. And my father and Bill were both collectors who had a pretty good antiquarian library. And so, and then, of course, there was type and photography and art. But so we started to find that we could do research at a, you know yeah. in our own library yeah. and not have to go to a real library and do work that had kind of a deep intellectual well of opportunity. I saw I watched a video today in preparing for this. I think it was like an AIGA yeah. video or something, and it was in the studio. Exactly. And there was these like it looked like like two stories of books. There were I think seventeen thousand books there. That's incredible. Fifteen thousand. I mean, just ridiculous. It was yeah. ridiculous, um, and very well codified. I mean, we knew everything that was there. That's so. You know, it was great. I mean, I, I loved raising children in my studio. Um, we never had to sit over them to do their homework because they saw oh, right, us there working right. all the time. Um, they were introduced to world music because we had young people like you working for us. And so yeah. there was great music always playing. And so it was, I mean, the, the culture of Winter House was a very special place. Yeah, I mean, I could tell that from that from that video, which I think was I think it was an AIGA video. Yeah. Um, and when I talked to Rob Jean Pedro, he had nothing but good things to say about his time there. And so there was like, uh, I think the phrase that he used was, was like his grad school was mm -hmm. like spending time there. Um, and so I'm interested in like how, how maybe that, I don't even know how to phrase this, but that library and the kind of intellectual side was feeding into the work that the studio was doing or influencing the clients or. Um, yes. So I would say a couple of things. One is that Bill was a total control freak. Uh, and so the clients that we had tended to be people that he felt were worth his time. Mm. Um, and there tended to be a sort of intellectual uh, bent to that. So yeah. uh, I loved hearing you talk about the um, Michael Rock's intelligence and uh, highly analytical yeah. mind working in fashion. I don't think Bill had that, that. He was really, really smart, but I don't think yeah. he had the capacity to understand how to bring that game to a very commercial client. And so we tended to have, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, the Archives of American Art, the Poetry Foundation. Uh, we tended to have intellectual clients or at least culturally resonant in yeah. an intellectual space that Bill could understand and, and make sense of over time. And Teach for America, we worked with Wendy Kopp for years oh. at Teach for America. Um, and, you know, a lot of repeat clients, a lot of long-term things, but I think always a very serious, he wanted things to be serious and I used to long for things to be a little less serious time to time I have to truth yeah. be told I can Karen. see that I, yeah. I, yeah. I believe that um, but so that's one piece and then and then design observer grew out of that because we we I, I was starting to write books 
Okay. And uh, I always started a book by floating an article in a magazine first. So I wrote a little uh, thing for the New Republic, or I'd write a little thing for the Anti Journal, and I would see if there was, you know, some kind of, if it stuck. Right. There was some response. If I felt that there was a, a, a sort of an appetite for engaging that deep in a deeper way. And then, you know, suddenly I would write a couple more essays and I had a book. Um, so my first few books were like that. And then at some point, I think this was the early 2000s, 2003 to, to be exact, um, uh, blogs were starting to be right. a thing. And Bill right. very quickly thought that this was an opportunity to engage in a, in a very interactive way with a kind of design criticism yeah. that had not been possible in print publishing. Yeah. And so it was born. So was that... I mean, in, when we talked the last time, we talked a lot about the Design Observer side. So I'm curious of how that, how publishing Design Observer then reflected back into the work you're doing in the studio. Like, were they two separate? Did you view them at the time as two very separate things, or were they very kind of influencing each other? I think they were very much influencing each other. There were other things along the way that I think would not have come up had Design Observer not been the kind of connective tissue between some of our endeavors. So for example, um, we did a, a Winter House Writing Prize for a number of years. Um, and it was just, you know, it was a and it was an onerous task to read mm -hmm. that, read that many. Yeah, I can't imagine. It was there were piles and piles and piles of paper to read. Um, but that very much dovetailed with publishing as and and I think more than publishing, really sponsoring and encouraging young writers. We were looking for the next generation of Steve Hellers and Ralph right. Kaplan's and Michael Rocks and iMagazines and oh, interesting. and, and, and yeah. really to sort of cast that net. I mean, Design Observer very specifically in its moment looked to, in, in many ways, I think other people do that now. Um, I'm thinking of um, um, Lucien Roberts in England and Graphic Design and. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. You know, they're doing, they do a sort of beautiful series of publications about design as it intersects with other things. That's very much what we wanted to do, was to cast this net around right. design as it related to not just our uh, preaching to the choir world. So uh, the, the Winter House Writing Awards was one. The other one, which I think um, came out of the kind of public engagement that Design Observer afforded us, was the Polling Place Photo Project, mm. which was... I think as much a function of being aware. I mean, you have to remember, Winter House was this big, beautiful house in the middle of nowhere. Right. Yeah. Right. So we started. I think we just felt this need to constantly push the envelope oh, in terms of being aware of a world outside. Right. It was such a bubble. Oh. Okay. So we. So uh, we. You know, I'm going to come back to this question of of um, the public place project, project in a minute. If you want to edit this piece out, but. When we moved to the country, we immediately started working with the Times of London and Netscape in California. It was like we wanted to prove to ourselves that even though the airport was two hours further right. away, we were going to go to Europe every six weeks and work with yeah. the Times of London. Okay. Interesting. It would have been so much easier if we'd stayed in New York. I mean, it was just so far to yeah. have like yeah. you get to Kennedy and go another yeah. two and a half hours. But we did it. Um, we wanted to be international. We wanted to be interactive. We wanted to have young people. We wanted to have other voices. And so the Polling Place Photo Project very much was a function of that. Suddenly people had smartphones, they could take pictures. The ease with which civilian journalism and photography was starting to come become evident to us made us realize that there was a way to take on the election. And we did it twice. We did the midterms in 2006, and we did uh, the 2008 election when Obama was elected. So there were two moments. Uh, there were I two moments. That one, I think. And we partnered with the New York Times, yeah. and they put a call to action on the front page of, of their website. And so, I mean, you know... Did this become an overarching view of our 
sense of our own political uh, kind of activism? Not really. I think they were experiments, uh, all of them. They were yeah. these sort of piecemeal experiments working with, we worked with Andrew Sloat, who made a wonderful video um, for us when Obama was elected. We did an exhibit of all the photographs right. in I, Hartford. Yeah. So, you know, somebody else might have really taken this, you know, to the White yeah. House, but we didn't. Um, but I think, uh, to come back to your original question, Design Observer opened up channels of opportunity and engagement that would not have been there if we'd stayed in the little echo chamber of Winterfest, per se. Yeah. So is that, I, I was looking on, um, on I, I think it was the Winterhouse Wikipedia page today, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it, it had a section on the, I think it was called Winterhouse Publishing, where, mm -hmm. where you were essentially a publishing house. Mm -hmm. Did that... Um, Winterhouse Editions. Winterhouse Editions. Was that after Design Observer had already... Like, was that something... That was always there. So Bill, okay. when Bill had a thing called William Drentel New York when he was at Drentel Dog Partners where he published, may he saw rest in peace, the most boring, small little books. I mean, they were adorable <laughs> and fantastic to look at and letterpress and they had, you know, calf sewn, whatever yeah. that... that but because I know I still have many of them and I've just been trying to unload them. Uh, but uh, he loved literature and he loved publishing and he okay. loved, loved, loved books. So he always had a publishing imprint. Oh, okay. uh, and so when he came, when we formed Winter House, which was originally our names and then we took over the house of Ezra Winter and turned it into Winter, because oh, everyone oh, knew it as the Winter House and the guy's okay. name who built it was Ezra Winter, we decided that uh, we wanted to continue that imprint but make it about things that we wanted to do there. And so we had a very short-lived publication called Below the Fold yep. that we did from there. We did, um, so they were always sort of our version of pentagram papers. We were right. always looking to Okay. It. But then there was another very savvy strategic thing Bill did, which was every time I wrote a book, two things. One is that every time I wrote a book, it was, we, we had it in our contract that it was a book with Princeton Architectural Press. It was a book with Yale University Press. It was always a Winter House edition. So then it, it basically, there was no uh, financial remuneration, but it amplified this right. connection for us to us right. as publishers. That was one thing. The other thing was that um, Bill was a very savvy businessman. And whenever we designed a book for someone, we did a lot of work for the University of Chicago over the years because um, we have a wonderful friend there who's an editor. We designed books for Susan, stuff for Susan Sontag, yeah. for Picador, and we did books for the Poetry Foundation. Whenever we did um, books with a publisher, uh, we would get a credit as a Winterhouse edition often on those books. And then finally, oh, wow. Bill would buy the world English-speaking rights to a book, sell them to Chicago or Yale or Princeton, and then have Chicago or Yale or Princeton hire us to design the book, so we then got a design fee. Now, if you know what design fees are in books, you'll know that this was not exactly going to subsidize right. tuition for our kids right. from college. Right. But be that as it may, it was really a brilliant move. So, it's really interesting, actually. So he loved really sort of macabre, Dickensian, depressing things like um, uh, he loved um, Kafka and he loved you know, German writers and yeah. Austrian writers. And, and so we, he would find these really dark, depressing books and buy the world English rights and sell them to Chicago, and then we would design them. And so it was this very kind of canny meta-universe of being a publisher, being a client, being a designer. Yeah. I, yeah, that's I did not... That's such a... I mean, I feel like I could... Now you have my secret, and now you can go forth and conquer and start buying the world English rights. I know. I feel like I feel like I could spend the rest of our time asking questions about this <laughs> now. Um, I'm, but I'm not going to do that, because I, I don't know how interesting that would be for everyone else. Um, 
I'm interested, actually, though, something that you said about kind of you, you were starting to write books at this time also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I, this is a question that I've started to ask a, a couple of the people that I've interviewed is, how has writing kind of changed how they think about design or how they actually design? And then vice versa, like how did being a designer influence how you are as a writer? Well, I'm going to answer the second half first, okay. if I may. Of this, course. Uh, uh, when designers write their own books and design them, um, copy editors go crazy because they do crazy things like I do, like um, no hyphenation. So I oh, rewrite right. sentences so right. that the rags right. are nice. It makes my copy editors crazy. Um, there's a wonderful sense of control when you're designing the book. So, so before before I yeah. now have a question, when you're, when you're writing a, a book, are you writing it like visually, or are you writing? No, like but a- I'll tell you what I do do visually. I spend a lot of time on the table of contents, like as much time oh. as I spend on the book, because for me, the organizational conceit of a table of contents is like the organizational conceit of a collection. Yeah. So if it's six chapters or twelve chapters or thirty-four chapters, they, there's a, a, there's always a rhythm to the way I yeah. write my TOCs because that gives me the an understand. It's an armature for me. It's right. basically the infrastructure of what I'm going to do. Um, I like the, I, I like the sort of numbered list of yeah. the expectation. I love the taxonomy of it. Okay. I, and so once I'm able to wrap my mind around that, uh, and, and I have when I wrote my book on scrapbooks, I easily spent as much time trying to figure out the table of contents as I as I did writing the book. I mean, it was really because oh, wow. it was such a morass of information. Yeah. Um, in my most recent book, uh, equally so, I went to Paris and wrote most of it, but I had to have a really firm outline of what I wanted those things to be. And then when I turn the book in, I often will decide I want to add a chapter because when I look at the sort of whole thing, oh, yeah. Yeah. I need to have an epilogue, or I want to rewrite the opening, or I want to shift chapters okay. around because I, then you have the sense that the choreographic whole yeah. has to be in some kind of envelope. So you see, I mean, I, I cut you off from the, Not at the all. Uh, train of thought that you were going, but um, so... D- do you see like your like design mind, I guess, most manifest itself in your writing through that kind of editing yes. process? For me, yes. For me okay. it's for me it's a structural, infrastructural set of conditions. Um, uh, just like when you teach, you think about what the limitations are of the assignment. I have to think yeah. about what the limitations are. Scrapbooks, I, I was 1863 to 1945. I had to, if I went past that oh, okay. or I went to books in England, I never right. would have finished the book. Right. So some of it is is um, temporal, some of it is conditional, some of it is architectural about the confines of the language you're using. It almost mm. doesn't matter, but you have to, I think, for me, um, think of, you know, um, it's very much like writing assignments. It's, yeah. it's the, so it's very much about the language, but I write visually. Okay. So that's the second half of the question. So uh, I had a very brief career as a television writer. Yeah, we talked about this last time. And I time. wrote really visually. I, I wrote descriptively, and mm-hmm. I, I tend to write descriptively. It's probably the thing, the best and the worst of my writing is that it is very descriptive. Interesting, um, yeah. I, I get really excited about writing when I have an ex- a subject that excites me. I have I have an idea for my next book at the moment that I'm obsessed with and it's creeping into all kinds of things that shouldn't creep into because I'm looking right. to make sense yeah. of it yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time. Um, late at night on my laptop, notes that I write, things that I mean, I, it's terrible. But eventually, hopefully it'll be a yeah. book. Um, yeah. So for me sometimes, and I think this is probably also a very visual conceit, uh, I build a collection of something. Mm-hmm. And I'm sort of serially monogamous with collections. And I build a collection and there's a curatorial understanding of that 
kind of albatross in my yeah. head and usually in my studio. And I need to make sense of it. And the making sense of it is the fun is the writing part. It can't just be I'm now going to write a chronology of right. every linen postcard ever made in 1935. Right. I can't it, and there are people that do that and they do it beautifully. But for me there has to be some social intent. There has to be social history. There yeah. has to be some larger scope of understanding about something that takes me into history of science or takes me into the history of culture or takes me into something that's about like the the, the chasm chasm between that, that's right. sort of that's that that you know it's the yeah, connective yeah, yeah, tissue yeah, thing yeah, again. Yeah. You know. How um the last time in the last time that we talked, you mentioned something, you mentioned it before we even started recording about how you see that you're kind of like swiveling between your I'm always swiveling writing self and your making self, I think is how you right. phrased it. Um and and I think when we talked last time you, you included teaching in there also. Very much so. And I'm I'm really interested in like very, we kind of talked about it in a very theoretical and kind of wide way. I'm very curious from like a very practical way, how does that look? Like what is that swiveling like on like a day-to-day -day basis or like, a, you know? You know, it, it's a wonderful question you ask, and, and I'm not sure there is one answer because I think the, if I had given that answer six months ago and I were to give it today, they might be two completely different things. My current thing that I'm really I'm I'm now teaching in the business school. Yeah, I want to talk and, about that and, also. And this so this really has to inform when I'm when I'm I mean these people are brilliant at what they do, which is not what we do. Yeah. It is so so different. Uh, the people that I find myself aligning with more and more are the organizational behavior people who are mm. psychologists and sociologists and they they study all sorts of things I don't know anything about. But by and large, they're very outcome-focused. They, they, they use right. words like takeaways and benchmarks yeah, and yeah, stakeholders, yeah. and we don't use language yeah, like that. Yeah. So I am finding more and more, I am in the business of asking questions, and I don't have any answer. I have mm. so, or I have so few answers. Or what I want is for you to have the answer. I write right. books so that people, I will seed the questions and the ideas of others, and maybe they will help come up with their own answer. What does that make me? I don't know what that makes me. A troublemaker, probably. Um, but I don't. I don't like public speaking. I don't like getting up on a soapbox and talking about my version of the world. I don't like buzzwords. Everything points to me being a theorist. Right. Everything points to me being maybe a futurist. That sounds a little bit highfalutin. I think theorist at least yeah. is. I'm more comfortable with that. Yeah. Um, and I find that, that like this last book has thrust me into a territory I never thought I would be in, which is that I am now getting calls and having conversations with people about ethics. All the time, design ethics. Yeah, how we how design is complicit in uh, a kind of um, purveying of false authority, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If, if what we do is essentially the physical evocation of of what sociologists call confirmation bias, right? Yeah. So, if confirmation bias yeah. is if a, a person is good looking, you're more likely to mm -hmm. believe them. Mm -hmm. Well, if design is, is beautiful or provocative or desirable, are we not complicit in actually making right. something ethically, morally questionable? Right? So, yes, we can say we're not going to work for clients who invest in, uh, you know, global warming. We can yeah. say that we are going to be aware of our, our clients' political agendas. We can print with soy-based inks. We can do a lot of things. But I, you know, this last book was about was about consequence and about trading hubris for humility. And I find that suddenly, particularly if you don't mind me saying so, since the election, I am yeah. being asked to have questions about things. How far I have strayed from 
my little studio, which I still call my temple. I, I'm really, yeah, I, yeah. as long as I'm in the studio, because if I'm in the studio and there are pencils and there's paper there, I'm not just pontificating on some stage. I don't, yeah, I don't want to pontificate yeah. on a stage. This is my favorite kind of thing to do, which yeah. is why I'm podcasting. Because you can really sense. do these one-on-one. Yeah. -on -one. You can have these conversations. Yeah. You can put these things out there. You can then have later, someone will hear you and say, I was listening, I was driving in the car and I heard you talking to Jared Fuller, but yeah. I want to know more about that. Right. So interestingly, here we are, two visual people having a conversation about right. the things that keep us up at night. Right. Yeah, I mean, as you were, as you were saying that, I was also thinking about the election and the world that we find ourselves in now and design's role in that. And you and Michael wrote a piece about design being this kind of optimistic um, profession. his word. Um, <laughs> But it's interesting to me how much um, design, in, in like a wide sense, is being talked about around these things with things like fake news, mm -hmm. I think is a very design problem. It is a design problem. Um, and like filter bubbles and- Echo chambers. Echo chambers. These are all design issues. And yeah. so hearing you talk about, that you're getting calls to talk about ethics is like, to me, that's the stuff that I hope I can kind of get out of these types of conversations in this mm -hmm. podcast is that- Design criticism is not just, and I feel like I've said this in every interview, it's not just, you know, fonts and colors and, um, you know, not anymore. the kerning Can't looks be. good, but needs to talk about all these other things. Right. And we should also. be, and we, because other people can read Ellen's book on Become a Typographer, yeah. the book I recommend to everybody in the world. Uh, other people can learn to be designers and probably if they put in all the hours we've put in, learn to be makers. Yeah. But I think this next phase of the world's, existence is going to face far fiercer problems and it it sort of uh, it obliges us to ask much more penetrating questions so one way to look at it is and I this is the point of view I take in my book is is that uh, it's our humanism that makes us yeah. separates us from the rest of the world but what does that mean that means uh, you know I said to somebody recently good designers look great designers listen it means listening right. it means uh, you know, if you look at post-war design, which really was such a response to the, the tumult and the unrest of war, looked to neutralize the things that right. we felt were right. really concerning us. And that's not an appropriate response anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not, when we talk about inclusiveness, we don't mean that. Yeah. We mean the opposite of that. Yeah. So suddenly we're dealing with a topography yeah. of design being quite different. Another way to look at how design is, is changing and our, our approach to making it a more holistic, uh, inclusive uh, platform for the dissemination of ideas is to think about design as communication first, form second. And I haven't said that out loud yet, but it's something I've really been thinking about a lot, which is that our, our responses are no longer formal. They're platform-based. They're system-based. Right, we right. all, certainly in social media and Twitter, Yeah. I mean, Donald Trump's tweets look yeah. like my tweets. Same typeface, same right, length, right. Yeah, same yeah, yeah, yeah. box. So... You think about all of how, how design education has really privileged formal, evocative manifestations of physical form. Mm -hmm. Those forms have changed. Graphic design is no yeah. longer graphic in the sense of two-dimensional. Right, right. But now look where we are. If the thing that is actually leading fake news, if the thing that's disseminating information, if the fact that we are all of us visually literate, anybody that has a screen right. and uses it right. is thought to be visually literate, what are we design people doing to make for a better planet. We have to get out in front of this. And so the way to get out in front of this yeah. is to maybe change our educational system. 
change the conversations we're having, change the way we have the conversation, change the tools we have to have the conversation, understand ethics and humanism and the boundaries yeah. of moral yeah. capacity, understand what international trade means, which means understanding nations that are not our own nations, which means design has to be a more international mm -hmm. language than it's ever been. So what does that mean? That comes yeah. back to form because it has to be visual. Right. So it's a big loop. Right. So I've just completely told you something that completely seems to counterindicate what I first started saying, which is it can't be just That's about so form. And yet, I'm working with these. Um, I'm working on this project with um, with Yale and Prada. It's interesting. I've been talking to Michael Rock about it a little bit, and Susan Sellers. Uh, but but I'm working with the possibility of looking at social enterprise in Italy. Mm as a little test case that would then be social enterprise in France and social enterprise in India, social enterprise in Africa and Mexico and Asia because Yale has 28 partner schools they work with. And I'm trying to figure out a way to create a little design incubator that we can then throw out to all of yeah. these schools. Oh, interesting. So design can start to be taught not as an imperialist, colonialist right. that was enterprise, my next right? Yeah. Because, yeah. because so much, if you, if you go back to that language, and I'm sorry, yeah. I'm rambling, but I'm like, no, I think, this is, I think so this is a thing. If you go going. back to that post-war, post-modern language yeah. of neutrality, mm -hmm. that's torpedoing in with a clean solution. Yeah. That's yeah. not what's going to work. Yeah. What we need to figure out how to do is create these teams, these operative mm -hmm. you know, organisms that can kind of self-select on the ground but maybe through technology and design and our basic yeah. fundamental understanding as communicators start to seed a new revolution that says that there's a way to talk yeah. about this stuff. So this all comes back to the designer as an ambassador of communication yeah. who this. then makes form. Yeah. But can't be based on right. form only. I love that. I mean, that the, this, the idea of like kind of the modernist neutrality is something that I'm very obsessed with lately and I've been thinking a lot about mm -hmm. and how that, that just doesn't, work it can't work anymore um and and this you know kind of crystal goblet design is neutral like you know we can't keep believing that that's what we do that right. that's the work we do is that way right it's not it's it's scalable in a way that's not going to end well yeah yeah <laughs> so is this i mean this leads in we just have a little bit of time left but does this where the work you're doing with the business school connect because I think it's interesting that you're teaching design to business students, yeah. and this idea that design now is kind of everywhere and influencing everything is that kind of where absolutely. What you're so, doing so I, I, we we began by we, we spent a lot of time in our first six months disabusing them of the notion that design thinking is the way to go, hmm. uh, with no slight on on IDEO and on the Stanford D School, but it's yeah. it's been ten years and yeah, it's California yeah. and it's time for something new. Yeah. And it would be a real it would that. be a real missed opportunity for Yale University to take a regurgitated version of yeah. something that existed ten years ago in Silicon Valley and make it their own. So, <laughs> we Michael Beirut and I were very much on the same page, and this is very consistent with our goals for Design Observer, which is there's two things we want to do, which are very in line with the, the dean's mission. One is to be very global, is because mm -hmm. because you all your generation, all of us, but especially your generation, will inherit a much more globally connected mm -hmm. world. And Yale's already got this partner network of schools, which is phenomenal. And the second is to really connect it to the humanities at the university. So yeah. we've got 42 libraries. If I want to have a speaker come in and talk about, uh, I don't know, the High Line, why wouldn't I bring somebody from the School of Architecture and the School of Public Health to talk about 
you know, the School of Forestry. We have right. all right. of these other opportunities to create a much more, um, I think, exciting and high-level conversation. And suddenly then design, people, I hear people say, design should have a seat at the table. Well, you know, that's, we, maybe, maybe we build the table and <laughs> we bring our own yeah, chairs yeah, yeah. and they come. And so, and so we are, yes, we've been hired, uh, not to get ahead of myself, we've been hired for three years with three-year appointments. We're teaching a bunch of classes. Okay. The whole thing could completely fall apart. But we thought we've got three years to try to make something happen. And um, uh, so we are trying to make something happen. So how, what have you, how has this, so you finished one semester? Yeah. How has Next that week. semester changed you as a designer or changed how you think about design? I have to talk myself off the ledge a lot because mm. I am one person. There's 600 students, and I'm Michael and I are the only people there. I said we feel sometimes like, you know, remember the school nurse in grade school? And yeah. there, was, there was like one of her and 600 <laughs> of you. Yeah. They are people who speak a different language in many ways mm -hmm. than we do. And I don't want design to be relegated to this sort of uh, peripheral location. At the same time, uh, what we do, design is so process-oriented, and they're mm -hmm. not makers. Um, so one of the things Michael and I are going by is this uh, kind of model that we're teaching design as a second language. Mm. So it's sort of the tapas idea of design. Yeah. So uh, we're not looking for literacy. We're looking for aptitude. We're looking for, we're looking for a little respect and understanding. I mean, you know, short, short term, uh, we build skills. Long term, we uh, have better clients. When, yeah. when I first came, somebody said to me, we want you to teach our students to lead better creative teams. And I said, creative teams don't want to be led by your students. They want to work with your students. Yeah. Right? So yeah. I feel that I have to, I will be perfectly frank, I'm uh, I'm a woman. There's not a lot of women there. Uh, it's not a tenure-track position. There's a lot of tenured people there. In the art school, where Michael and I have taught for 20 years, no one has tenure, so it's a much more of an even uh, game. But it's also not managed in this mm -hmm. way. These people, really, they run it like a business. And it's I've learned so much. Yeah. I mean, they really, they're, they're just... I, I'm going to give you one quick example. Um, the laws of supply and demand there are different. So I'm teaching an elective uh, in the spring on the design-driven business in Italy uh, for seven weeks, which will eventually be the design-driven business next okay. year in France and then India. And I, I'm looking to see if I can incubate this little way yeah, of looking yeah. at design as a prismatic lens for somebody specific to that culture and that country, bringing people from that country yeah. on satellite, all that sort of thing. So I thought I'd have 10 to 15 students, and I got money. I, I got, got them to uh, make allocations to bring 10 to 15 students with me to Milan to go to the Prada Foundation wow. to a conference in, in May. 40 students signed up. Wow. So I assumed they'd be mad at me, and they were thrilled because huh. it shows yeah. demand. Yeah. And they said, we'll figure out a way. We'll, oh, we'll, we'll find a way to pay for it, or yeah. the students, will, 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 they'll go on a cheaper flight. Or, and that's the kind of creative problem-solving that I haven't actually seen in my 20 years at Yale a lot of, huh. that I was really impressed by. Like, if, you, if, if they say, if you say, um, you know, if I say jump, they say how far. I mean, they, if they say think big. Yeah. They say keep going. They say great, you should, you know, build it. I mean, and we'll figure out how to pay yeah. for it. And maybe we can't do it for another three years. And, but what I love about them and what has given me renewed vigor, which you can probably hear in my voice, is they, they'll admit what they don't know. They'll help you find a way to get it. Yeah. Uh, they they know they have creative minds like I have never seen. They're not my creative mind or yours, but they know how to walk around a problem in a way that's really interesting. And I feel like my mind is being opened to a whole new way oh, of working. Now I have to go back to my studio at night because I feel like I have been 
you know, walking in trenches without the proper footwear. I mean, it's really, it's really been a learning <laughs> yeah. curve. But I've learned yeah. more in the last two weeks than I learned in the two weeks prior. And I feel like, you know, three years from now, if we have this conversation, I might actually know what I'm doing. In the meantime, they really are hungry for designers to talk to them. And Michael and I have had this very interesting 12 weeks of bringing in movie producers and doctors and um, uh, uh, Danny Meyer from Shake Shack. Yeah. Paula Shack. We've brought in all these different people. And so we're trying to scope out for them and with them a way for this community to build its own design language. Yeah. It's not design thinking. It's going to be its own thing. And my God, if we get there, it won't be just me and Michael. It will be us, you know, as, as leaders. Yeah working building them into their own leaders i mean they're really it's it's a management school it's not a business school they're these kids are going to oh. lead they're they're future leaders yeah. and so so i'm spending a lot of time thinking about what is design leadership what huh. is what what does that even mean is yeah. that a thing is design leadership a thing well to come back to this question of humanity um i've been asked to speak to um the national organization of philanthropists in the spring okay and i said to somebody recently I don't know anything about philanthropy. He said, look it up. There's a synonym for, th for, for philanthropy is humanism. You just wrote a book on humanism. You're probably a good choice. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, I can do that. That I can do. Interesting. I have two questions to wrap it up. One is a semi-big question. and then, and then I'll a, try to be brief. And then one that, that I think is a little bit smaller. Um, and I, I wasn't planning on asking this first one, but based on what you said is, so much of what I'm doing with this podcast and my thesis and all this is is kind of design criticism and interested in how we talk about design and how we talk about design to other designers, like mm -hmm. how designers should be talking about design between each other, but then also how design should be talked about outside of us. Wonderful. Um, and I'm just a curious about what your thoughts are on that. I don't really have a specific question. Yeah, but no, like, it's good. I have one thought on that for you, okay. which is um, because you're a very articulate person and many designers are and the ones who aren't should become more articulate, is that we have to be not afraid to ask the tough questions. And sometimes tough questions are hard with words and that's when we move to images. Mm. And then we can come back to words. But I think the more we choose to work internationally. Yeah. So I think design criticism, to come back to your question, with people who aren't just us, is opening up the conversation about visual culture mm -hmm. at a moment when visual literacy is, is really on the threshold of something quite new and extreme and exciting right. but we have to so we are the ambassadors yeah. for making sense of all of those things yeah. and that's why design criticism your, your your work that you're doing with this podcast and with this thesis I think is at a, is a very opportune moment and could catapult you to the next phase I mean you know podcasts didn't exist you're right about yeah. two years ago yeah. and now now the great thing about podcasts is realizing who hears them who listens I'm always right. hearing people that I went to you know grade school with who will be yeah. listening to this in some yeah. other part of the country that I've never even been to you realize you have a reach with words right that then we can right. build into an infrastructure with other kinds of things and and that's where our our own visual literacy uh, which is of course I think uh, worthy of respect is going to matter. Yeah, I love that. My last question, I wanted to, since you're here in Baltimore and like that this is in real life, I was curious about how you think about being like a visiting critic at MICA or like what, not even at MICA specifically, but you know, how do you, what is, what is this like for you to like come to a school where you don't know any of the work? And you, I, I, you should probably ask me tomorrow after I've seen the work. Yeah. Um, well, I'll go anywhere if Ellen tells me to go because I'm a huge Ellen Lupton fan. I always have been. Um, Isn't everybody? Aren't we I all? just, I mean, yeah. and and you know, her her uh, 
under her guidance, the work here is always interesting to me. Um, I hunger to look at work, and particularly with graduate students, because I'm okay. not teaching graduate students right now. I teach freshmen at Yale. Oh. I teach this course on the color blue with freshmen, and they're super, super, super smart and wonderful, but they're young and unseasoned, and so their intellectual reach in terms of their capacity to engage ideas as, yeah. as form givers and idea seekers is perhaps not what yours is. Oh, so um, I'm always really happy to, and also the shorter answer to all of this is that I've been, I went to Yale as an undergrad, as a grad student, I've taught there for 20 years. I am so, okay. I'm such a lifer there. I will just, you know, any time anybody invites me, unless it's like, you know, Wyoming in February, I might actually right. resist. Um, but yeah, I'm always really happy to go to, to go to other schools and schools where um, they have, are under the guidance of people who are really at the top of their game and always have been like Ellen. So um, it's a great privilege. I love that. I'm excited. Yeah, thank you so much for doing this. Oh again. my god, I this I'm, was so, so, I'm fun. so excited, selfishly so excited to see where you go and this work goes. This episode was recorded on December 4th, 2016, in Baltimore, Maryland. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter at Surface Podcast. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>